On this episode of 7 Minutes in Heaven with a Scientist, because everyone's a little bit curious, we talked to Dr. Ezra Markowitz, conservation psychologist from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We talk about how our identities, the way we think, and emotions shape our decisions around climate change. So Hey, Lauren, why do you sound so sexy today? I'm sick today. Oh, no. Are you feeling okay? Well, kind of, but I feel better when we talk about science. Well, do I have a pill for you, baby. Ooh, what is it? Today on the show, we have a BFD. Really? Who is it? We have Ezra Markowitz. Really? Yes. He is one of the first scholars to apply moral psychology research to conservation and climate change. That's really impressive. For those of you who don't know, moral psychology is basically it's all of these scholars who are looking at how our social groups and our identities and the way we see the world, how that impacts whether we think something is right or wrong. So this is a really definitely a big deal. So this is a huge deal. So there's been tons of work, but it wasn't until five or six years ago that little Ezra Markowitz in graduate school uncovered this hole in academia where he could take this moral psychology and apply it to the psychological ethics around climate change. Remind me, what were we doing five or six years ago? Well, we too were fresh-faced graduate students on our way and to get our PhDs. It was a journey of self-discovery. So while he was building a brand new discipline, you and I were staying up late trying to get through statistics, wondering if we would make it to the next semester. And distracting each other in the office. Well, we need each other, I guess. We still do that too, actually. <laughs> True. So are you ready for this BFD? I am totally ready. Let's do this. Hi, Dr. Markowitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you study how people think and how this influences whether or not they're willing to take action on environmental problems. But how did you first get interested in this? Well, I've been interested in environmental issues for, I think, as long as I can remember. And after I took a couple of psych courses in high school, I knew I really wanted to study human decision-making. But it wasn't until about halfway through my time at Vassar when one of my mentors, Dr. Randy Cornelius, uh, he knew about my, my two interests, and he said, look, Ezra, you can put these things together. There's this field of conservation psychology where people study exactly the things you're interested in. How do people make environmental decisions? What are the factors that kind of shape the decisions that people make, whether it's uh, recycling or reducing their household energy? And so that set me on the, the kind of whole path from there on. And that led me to graduate school out of the University of Oregon. And I got a chance to work with some really big-name, awesome people in, in psychology, Paul Slovit, Lou Goldberg, the, one of the fathers of the field of personality psychology, and, a, and many others. So I kind of really got to dive into these issues at the intersection of decision-making, social psychology, uh, communications, and environmental conservation. Within moral psychology, many scholars say that people aren't inherently rational beings that make cost-benefit analysis that inform their, you know, decisions and their behavior, but rather all of us have these sort of gut 
emotional reactions to information or stories or visuals that we then try to justify and reason, even if those reactions seem objectively irrational or scientifically unsound. And here you are, the first person who applied that research to climate change and the potential for people to take action. Yeah, so I was um, really interested in a question that a lot of people had started to, to think about in 2010 or kind of in the, the first decade of this, uh, this century, which was, why are people not more engaged with climate change? What's kind of getting in the way of people thinking and taking more action on this issue as if it were, you know, really a moral imperative? So kind of combined what I had learned in this class with uh, Dale Jameson with a new work that was coming out of moral psychology to think about some of the, the barriers at the psychological level that get in the way of people recognizing this as a moral issue and how that then kind of gets in the way of people taking action. So you've documented a number of different reasons why we have these psychological barriers around climate change. Um, can you give us a list of a couple of them? Sure. So some of them really have to do with kind of this interaction between features of the problem of climate change itself and Kind of what gets our moral alarm system going. So, for example, this is a kind of a big abstract issue, right? This is a, an issue that's all about numbers and probabilities, and it's not something that's happening right in front of us that we've kind of experienced directly. And this is a real problem for the moral judgment system, which really kind of developed over over time to be really sensitive to questions of right and wrong, and especially issues of kind of harm and victims that are right in front of us, where we can see there's somebody that caused harm to somebody else. There's a victim that we can identify. There's something that needs to be done right now to kind of fix the situation. Climate change doesn't really have any of those features. It's also an issue that involves lots of uncertainty when it comes to kind of the exact details of who's going to be impacted and when and where. And that uncertainty gives us kind of an opening to be overly optimistic, uh, to think, well, maybe it's not going to be such a bad issue. So, you know, it's probably not kind of a morally required of me to take action. And then there are some things that are really kind of unique to, to human psychology and our moral judgment system that also pose some issues. So, uh, you know, this is not a problem that anybody is intending to cause. It's really a side effect of modern life um, that we have climate change at all. So there's not really anybody that we can point to immediately and say, look, that person or that group is trying to cause climate change. And that poses a really big problem because, again, it's really sensitively tuned to finding wrong, kind of wrongdoing and to being able to find somebody to blame and, and someone who can, uh, who can take action against. And then the flip side of that is also true with climate change, which is that a lot of the kind of messaging that we've heard for, for almost decades now is each of us needs to take responsibility, that the, the emissions that each of us is responsible for from our you know, household electricity use or driving our cars around kind of makes us all responsible. And, you know, the implication there is that we should feel guilty about this problem. The problem is that we're really good at kind of getting out of feeling badly about ourselves. Nobody wants to feel badly about themselves. So we have a guilty bias. People are really good at trying to avoid feeling guilty. And so we kind of downplay the issue. We downplay the fact that there are lots of victims. We kind of play up the fact that there's lots of uncertainty to kind of get us out of this uh, feeling, feeling badly about it. That's really interesting. I'm thinking about, you know, what makes a frame or what makes a story and there's a protagonist and an antagonist and there needs to be some sort of conflict that resolves into something. And with climate change, if it's a human-made problem, then the people that we need to change are the antagonists. So how do you communicate to somebody while that they need to change their behavior because, you know, 
in this case, they're the one creating a problem in the story while not making them feel bad and subsequently making them avoid your information or get get out of feeling guilty. Yeah, so this is a, it's a tricky line to walk. There's certainly a role for, for negative emotions like fear or sadness or guilt uh, or shame to play in shaping people's behavior. But I think there's an equally important role, if not more so, for uh, engaging people positively with issues like this. And one of the things that I've been really interested in throughout my career, kind of how we can flip around uh, a lot of the narrative around environmental issues in general, which is often very negative, to be more positive. And so are there positive uh, emotions, things like pride or gratitude or hope, that might be just as powerful, if not more so, than guilt and shame in getting people engaged. And so that means, you know, rewriting how we think about and tell stories about the environment, about climate change, uh, to give people an opportunity to feel those positive emotions rather than to, to just feel badly about themselves all the time. Well, speaking of emotion, in a paper that you wrote, you said that uh, one of the barriers to climate action is compassion. And basically you said our collective ability and willingness to confront major environmental problems often goes up against our ability to maintain compassion. So this is definitely one of the more troubling projects that I've worked on, I think, over the past 10 years. There's this phenomenon that my colleagues and I refer to as compassion aid which is the, the finding that now we've replicated many times where if the number of victims, let's say, of a natural disaster increases, people's ability to feel compassion for those victims actually seems to go down. When there's just a single person or single animal that needs our help, it's easy for us to kind of get into the mind of that victim, to feel what it might be to be in their situation, and to open our wallets and our hearts to feel compassionate towards them, to want to take action to help them. But when there are lots of victims, and this is what the case is often with environmental issues where we're talking about, you know, millions of potentially of animals being uh, hurt by habitat destruction or climate change or whatever it might be, or we're talking about lots of species that we might lose, all of a sudden we get overwhelmed. And for a variety of kind of psychological reasons, we see that people often shut down or start to shut down. So they actually show less compassion, even when we go just from one victim to two victims. Do you have any indication as to why this happens? Yeah, so one of the things that's going on is that as the number of victims kind of goes up, our sense that we're actually helping out really goes down, right? It feels like we're just a drop in the bucket. Yeah, one of the things that Paul Slovic says, it's one of my favorite quotes, is that numbers make us numb, that when we're presented with data or large numbers that express some, you know, death or atrocity, we can't really comprehend it. And it just leaves us sort of psychologically numb where we just, you know, we see it, but we can't emotionally react because it's too big for us to mentally handle. That's right. We often shut down. In fact, there's some really interesting psychological research that shows that even just knowing that we're going to be asked to help more people or more animals than we feel like we're able to, starts that process of kind of shutting down emotionally so that we don't feel badly about ourselves and we don't feel badly about the, the situation. Of course, that just leads people to be even more disengaged with the issue in the first place. So another thing that I found really interesting was that identity played a really large role in who compassion faded for. So it mostly faded for people who did not have a strong environmentalist identity. Yeah, that's right. So one of the, I think this is an, an interesting and important finding from the work that we've done, and now others have also found it, which is, you know, that this finding that people's ability to, to help out and to show compassion decreases only really happens for people that don't really identify as a strong environmentalist. So these are the people that they don't, you know, they don't think a lot about environmental issues. Maybe they haven't 
heard about the scale of the problems that are in front of us. Um, on the other hand, people who are really committed environmentalists, they know that if I'm, you know, if we're asking them to donate to a single panda in need or to, you know, to protect the 1,000 pandas that are left in the wild, uh, that really what I'm asking them to do is, is to help on this issue of protecting pandas. And because they care about the environment, they're not so affected by kind of issue framing. And that's an, you know, that's an important finding, I think, especially for advocacy uh, organizations or, or any other communicators who are trying to build broader coalitions around uh, environmental conservation issues. So if identity is such a big deal, though, and it's so important, are there identities that we can cultivate or leverage to overcome some of these psychological barriers? So I think the key here is not thinking about building new identities necessarily, but as you said, leveraging the identities, the social identities that people already have, whether it's being a parent or being a teacher, and finding new ways to connect those existing identities to to, to changing environmental behaviors, to promoting environmental conservation and protection. And that's the, the new thing that uh, the communicators need to be able to, to figure out, is, is how do you connect an existing identity that someone already has in a novel way so that they, when they think about themselves as, for example, a father, that means not just protecting your kid when they're, you know, getting on the school bus each day. It also means protecting the environment because that's an important part of being a parent to you. So we've got this idea of leveraging these specific identities, but we live in a really polarized moment and our ties to our particular social groups are really strong. Does this advice still apply now or are there other things that we need to do to move forward? I actually think it applies even more so in a polarized world where, you know, environmental activist or environmental kind of protection has become very strongly associated with certain cultural identities in the U.S. So we, you know, it's even more important right now to find you know, these, these novel ways to connect people's existing identities rather than to try and change who people are, because um, ultimately, you know, I don't think that's a fruitful uh, way to go, nor do I think it's really the appropriate way to go. So what are you working on next? Well, one of the themes that runs through a lot of our work right now is the concept of interpersonal communication as kind of a, a new and underappreciated pathway to shifting people's behavior. We're really uh, quite interested in lots of projects in how people kind of engage with one another at an individual kind of one-on-one -on -one scale to help shape behavior. We know from lots of work over the past decades from social psychology that you know, social norms and uh, kind of what we see other people doing around us play a really big role in shaping our own behavior. But we don't have so much work looking at how we get, uh, how we kind of get people to speak up when they see somebody do something either bad, like you know, throw their cigarette butt on the ground, or when they do something good, like they turn the car off and they're waiting to pick up their kid at school rather than idling their engine. So this, I think, is you know, there's a lot of really interesting implications of the work in lots of different domains, so we're pretty excited about it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed having you on, and I feel like we learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. So, Lauren, what did we learn? Well, we learned that communicating about climate change is difficult. There's a lot of uncertainty, and it brings up feelings like guilt and blame that people just don't want to deal with. And we learned that if we want people to take action on climate change, that we have to tie climate change and the issues around it to people's identities. So tie it to their identities as hipsters or farmers or moms. Or hipster farmers. Or hipster farmer moms. Exactly. Seven Minutes in Heaven is produced by Frank, an organization of changemakers and movement builders who use strategic science-based communication to ignite social change. Frank is located in the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications. 
The show is hosted by me, Annie Niemand. And me, Lauren Griffin. Music is by The Captain, and the show is created by us, Brandon Telg, and Scott Kaufman. If you like what you heard, connect with us on social media. We're on Twitter at Frank Gathering, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you just can't get enough of the science of social change, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find it on our website, frank.jou.ufl.edu. As always, stay frankly curious.